This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on Zoom calls all day, having to wear a mask everywhere, and now using your eyes and your eyes only to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite line of brow products that are so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, you can have the most amazing brows ever. They have an amazing range of products from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, and gels. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And last episode, we talked about the future of gay marriage. And we realized what a perfect segue into wedding season. Hooray. Hooray. It is August and wedding season is officially in full swing. So this episode, we're talking about engagement rings. Mm -hmm. And the next episode, just to round out... A wedding week to kick off wedding season because, of course, with stuff mom never told you, there's endless fodder for us to talk about with wedding season, wedding related topics. So we're going to kick it off with engagement rings. Next episode, spoiler, we're going to talk about bachelorette parties. Woot. Woot. But Penis let's straws. <laughs> yes. Well, let's start on a classy note. Diamonds. With engagement rings and diamonds. 75% of American brides are wearing a diamond engagement ring. And Caroline, can you guess how much the average engagement ring costs? Is it two months' salary? It's about two months' salary. According to a 2009 survey from thenot.com, the average engagement ring costs 5,847 clams. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It's a lot of money to wear on your finger. It's not cheap. Uh, so let's jump right in to a timeline of engagement rings. When we started wearing these pricey rings, what they symbolize and what the deal is with those diamonds. We touched on the diamond aspect a long time ago, years ago in a podcast solely devoted to diamonds, but we figured it's high time to revisit this. Yeah, there is a long history of engagement type or betrothal type jewelry uh, that men present to their beloveds. Uh, everything, you know, from ancient Egypt to Rome to Asia, uh, just a tradition of grooms giving brides some kind of essentially like betrothal tag. Yeah, although my my favorite of these are called puzzle rings mm-hmm. that appeared in the first century B.C. in Asia. But one of the first recorded uses of a diamond engagement ring comes in 1477 with Archduke Maximilian of Austria, who proposed to Mary of Burgundy. Yeah, and the ring supposedly had uh, thin, flat pieces of diamond in the shape of an M for her initial. How sweet. That does sound kind of sweet. I hope you really did love her. Maximilian? Yeah. 
Maximilian and Mary. I have a feeling that this was probably more of a diplomatic union,、mm. but I like the idea of those little diamonds spelling out her initial. That's that w- true. That was at least thoughtful. It was thoughtful.、Um, but moving forward a little bit, there. <laughs> There is some sketchy history of engagement rings and things that we are not quite sure how accurate they are. But one of them that we're not quite sure of, but that is interesting, if it is true,、um, in the 18th century, Puritans in America supposedly gave their betrothed thimbles instead of rings, which they thought of as frivolous. But eventually, many women were like, "I want a ring still," and so those thimbles got sawed off to be actual. Ring-shaped items, and the Victorians were also fans of romantic jewelry. We have things like poesy rings, and also in the 1800s, jewelry made from human hair. I, I posted a picture of that on our Tumblr a, a while ago.、Um, and they also used gemstones to spell out terms of endearment. So, a very strong connection between romance and jewelry. And in the 1840s, the engagement ring tradition. As we think of it in a more modern sense, really takes off in the United States. But at that time, they were given to both women and men. It's not until the 1900s when the women-only custom really takes hold. Yeah. Well, so、uh, the push to give diamonds really got going in、uh, towards the mid to late 19th century. Uh, in 1867, the diamond supply got a huge boost when diamonds were discovered in the Cape Colony in Africa, which is now part of South Africa, and that that gets us rolling on the De Beers Mining Company and a huge flood of diamonds into the market. Yeah, previously diamonds had only been found in Indian riverbeds in Brazilian jungles, so they really were these precious gemstones that were often reserved for wealthier people and royalty.、Uh, but when Cecil Rhodes founded that De Beers Mining Company in 1880, it shifted the entire industry. And six years later, in 1886, Tiffany and Company introduces the Tiffany setting, which was designed to maximize a diamond's brilliance by raising it up from the band, as opposed to like with Archduke Maximilian's ring setting, which had the thin, flat pieces of diamond set into the band. Tiffany really put the diamond in the spotlight. Yeah, and then moving forward into the 1890s, we have the appearance of affordable wedding and engagement rings in mail order catalogs. So that's how popular and commonplace they were becoming—that you could pick up a Sears and Roebuck catalog and buy your sweetie an engagement ring. And then in 1918, we have Cartier creating the Trinity ring for Jean Cocteau, who gives one to his lover, poet Raymond Radigo. And it's still a traditional、uh, wedding ring in France, and that's the Trinity ring is when you have、uh, the three bands that interlock. I think it's white gold, yellow gold, and rose gold. If I'm not mistaken, somebody correct me. So even though at this point engagement rings are still being given, it's still not the idea of giving someone that huge rock. The whole idea of a man needing to spend two months' salary on a ring to really prove his worth and really give that woman a, a ring that she deserves, that she's going to wear on her hand for the rest of her life or for the rest of their. Nuptials, however long that might last,、um, and in the background 
we have some legal changes that are about to start going on, which is going to play a big part in why we see diamond engagement rings as the standard today. Now, there used to be a law called the Breach of Promise to Marry that allowed women to sue for breaking off an engagement because essentially marriage was, you know, very much an economic arrangement. Women would literally lend their hands in marriage. Uh, so back in the day, there was a law called the Breach of Promise to Marry that allowed women to sue men for breaking off an engagement because if that was the case, there is a decent chance that she and the groom-to-be would have already done it. And if he walked out before they walked down the aisle, she would, in society's eyes, be damaged goods. How charming. And so legally, under this breach of promise to marry law, she could sue. Now, the guy could also sue as well, but usually it was more a protection for these potentially sexually spoiled women. I hate to put it in those terms, but that was really how it went. Because economically, a woman who had had sex before marriage had lost her, quote unquote, market value. But in the 1930s, states began striking down the law. And by 1945, 16 states, which at the time accounted for nearly half of the population in the United States, had made it obsolete. But what is happening at the same time, Caroline, to maybe swoop in symbolically and take the place of these breach to marry laws? Oh, that would be diamond engagement rings. Mm. Uh, we're becoming more than just decorative jewelry or something that maybe just the upper class or the royalty were giving to their uh, beloveds. Uh, that initial surge in diamond imports from companies like De Beers, which we're about to get into, started in 1935. So all of a sudden, you know, states are striking down this breach uh, of promise to marry law. But women are still getting as as all of these diamonds are coming into the market in the U.S., they're still getting some type of literally financial insurance against being left. Yeah, this offers the brides to be a form of collateral, this upfront financial insurance in the form of a more expensive diamond ring. And this also is when we see that cement shifted from men and women getting some form of engagement rings to it just being a thing given to the women. Um, and as this is happening, too, this is a boon for the De Beers cartel, because as as you mentioned, we have the discovery of all of those diamonds in South Africa around 1870, which endangered the investments made by British financiers who had organized the mines there because the market was flooded with all of these new diamonds. And so these financiers were worried that the diamonds would become only semi-precious stones. Enter De Beers Consolidated Mines Limited. How they were able to do this. I don't even know. Well, it is funny to think about. I, I thought the same thing. Like, that is so shady. But, I mean, I feel like, as we've discovered on the podcast so many times, uh, stuff was just shady back then. Yeah. Could, <laughs> could you offer our listeners a rundown of the extent of this De Beers diamond monopoly? Yeah. So, basically, when all these investors were so concerned about protecting their interests and their investments in these mines... They decided to merge into a powerful single entity in 1888, which was the De Beers Consolidated Mines Limited. But in London, they operated under the name Diamond Trading Company. That's nice and generic. In Israel, they were known as the Syndicate. 
Across Europe, they were called the Central Selling Organization, which was an arm, a supposed arm of the diamond trading company. And in Africa, outside of South Africa, they were disguised under various subsidiaries. So, like, I mean... People, only people who are doing shady things need to uh, cover it up, right? Yeah, because they were creating this massive diamond monopoly, which allowed them to stabilize the price of diamonds because other commodities values are fluctuating in response to economic conditions because, hello, what's about to happen? The Great Depression, sending commodities prices down. But the diamonds prices were actually increasing at that time due to the power of that De Beers entity. But in the late 1930s, demand for diamonds was still down in Europe. And so De Beers said, you know what? We have a giant potential market in the United States. But they also had, with so many diamonds, problems with quality and problems with some lagging sales. So... Bring in the marketers. Yeah, well, around this time, about three-fourths of all the De Beers cartels diamonds were sold for engagement rings in the U.S. But it is funny to note that, like, if you go back and look at rings from this time, you know, a lot of jewelers were quoted in stories about this stuff. They are really poor quality because people were not as concerned with quality, clarity, cut, all of that stuff we know is the four C's now. They just wanted a big old rock. And so quality did suffer. But yeah, it's, this is really a job for marketing now. And so De Beers brought in agency NW Air, which stressed the need to strengthen the association of diamonds with romance in the public's mind, convince young men that diamonds are a gift of love, and convince women that they're an integral part of courtship. And, and what are our attitudes about engagement rings today in 2013? Same thing, that they're a gift of love, that you have to get it for your fiancé, and the woman has the opinion, you know, like, oh, well, if I don't get a ring, like, I mean, that's just part of engagement. I have to get a diamond ring. Right. And not just any ring. It needs to be an impressive diamond ring so that she can do the show off with, mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, flashing her, her rock for friends and family and who knows, just strangers and grocery <laughs> lines. And it's incredible to think of how they were able to do things like tap into this early celebrity culture. Right. Because by this point, movie stars were really huge and so they would do things like have diamond photo ops essentially for movie stars to show off their rings uh, they would take out print and radio ads but they still needed a slogan and in 1947 copywriter Francis Garrity coined a diamond is forever, which advertising age in 1999 named the slogan of the century. And I like to think of Frances Garrity for Mad Men fans out there. I like to think of her as a Peggy Olsen mm-hmm. before her day. This episode is brought to you by Quip. When's the last time you got rewarded for brushing your teeth? With Quip's new smart electric toothbrush, good habits can earn you great perks like free products, gift cards, and more. The Quip Smart Brush for adults and kids connects to the Quip app with Bluetooth. So you can track when you're brushing, get tips, you can earn points, and you can redeem those points for rewards. Already have a Quip? Upgrade it with a smart motor and keep the features you know and love. And beyond the brush, Quip has everything you need to build a complete routine. Equal-friendly solar battery charger to power your Quip with sunshine and the refresh bag to bring you good oral care habits everywhere you go. Plus, you can get brush head, toothpaste, and floss refills delivered from $5, and shipping is free. How smart is that? 
Start getting rewards for brushing your teeth today and go to getquip.com slash stuffmom right now to get your first refill free. That is your first refill free at getquip.com slash stuffmom, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash stuffmom. Quip, better oral health made simple and rewarding. This episode of Stuff I Never Told You is brought to you by Catan. This summer looks a lot different than most. We're staying at home for the most part, and many events we usually look forward to are canceled. We find ourselves looking for new activities to enjoy at home. Catan is a board game for three to four players ages 10 and up, although many younger kids can play with initial adult guidance. It's a great way to keep families engaged and off screens, even if it is just for a little while. And those opportunities are hard to come by. Unlike the roll your dice, move your mice games, this is a little different. What are your experiences? The first time I played Catan was at our office game night, and it was so fun. It was quick to pick up. It was easy. It was social. We made it really competitive because we're a competitive group, but you don't have to. And what I thought was just going to be a, a short game among friends turned into an epic game night that we shall remember forever. <laughs> hours we played, hours. And uh, yes, I lost, but I had fun. You had fun. <laughs> well, obviously it keeps you really social. And like you said, it is really easy to pick up, which is really nice right now. This year is the 25th anniversary of Catan. Get Catan at catanshop.com slash mom. Listeners of the podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code mom at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. Well, it's funny because she said that nobody was really excited about the slogan when she came up with it, but that it eventually became De Beers. Like, that's their motto. That's their official slogan. It's on all of their advertisements still. Well, so by the end of the 1950s, uh, the agency NW Air reported to De Beers that, hey, our all our hard work is paid off. 20 years of advertisements and publicity, putting these diamonds on movie stars, putting out all of these ads with sappy copy, it really had a profound effect. And an entire generation had come of age thinking diamond engagement rings were required. And as I mentioned at the top of the podcast today, 75% of American brides are wearing a diamond engagement ring. And the idea of framing it as forever Mm -hmm. was really important because that also had an impact on controlling the resale market of diamonds because you're not going to eventually pawn that diamond off. No, you keep it and you pass it down in your family because as a guy, you're going to go out and spend that two month salary on a rock impressive enough to keep in the family. Right. Which is such a I mean, it is a big con when you think about it, because when people try to resell their diamonds, you can never get anywhere close to the money that you spent on it. Yeah. It's almost like buying a car. As soon as you drive it off the lot, its value goes down. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) engagement rings, used car lots. (laughs) I hate to make that association, but it is kind of there. And just showing how savvy advertising and De Beers were in tandem in terms of making diamond engagement rings a thing. They even were able to go into Japan. And do a similar thing. They did this with agency J. Walter Thompson in the 60s. Yeah, in 1967, the year the ad campaign began, 
Just under 5% of engaged Japanese women received diamond engagement rings. It, it just wasn't a thing. Um, but in 1981, about 60% of Japanese brides wore diamonds because they launched this brilliant ad campaign. I mean, they had people in Western clothes with Western cars, like the fanciest, most up-to-date, fashionable stuff in these ads. And, you know, the couples were just having a gay old time. Um, and it's like, well, don't you want to buy her a diamond? Don't you love her? Yeah, and don't you want to kind of align with these Western values? Right. Come on, get get hip, get with it, get a diamond. Um, but once the Soviet Union at the time, moving into Cold War era, finds diamonds as well, they start flooding the market with a lot of smaller diamonds. So, of course, De Beers, in Monopoly form, swoops in and is like, oh, Soviet Union, we're going to buy all of your diamonds because we don't want you to dilute the market. But then they have all of these tiny diamonds. So what does De Beers do? Because they already have a corner on the engagement ring with all the the, the big rock. Mm -hmm. So what do they do? Oh, Guys, you know what? Uh, You need to buy her an eternity band. Right. Once you've been married for a couple of years, you need to buy her some more diamonds. How about an eternity band for your wife for your 25th anniversary? In other words, help us get rid of all these Soviet diamonds, please. Yeah, we have a we have too many teeny tiny diamonds that we don't know what to do with. So, just as as a uh, perspective on how uh, flush with cash De Beers was getting around this time by 1979, N.W. Air had helped De Beers expand its sale of diamonds in the U.S. to more than 2.1 billion at the wholesale level compared with just 23 million back in 1939. And I didn't know, Caroline, that De Beers and this whole advertising initiative is the reason why we think of those four C's of shopping for diamonds, of the cut, clarity, color, and carrot, because all of that was engineered mm-hmm. to steer us toward bigger, more expensive rocks. Right. Is is your diamond flawless? Oh. Well, it should be. He obviously doesn't love you if it's not. Well, one thing that a lot of uh, listeners might find surprising is that the notion of the two-month salary is relatively new. It's not until the 1980s that the ad agency starts introducing this campaign that set that two-month salary benchmark with the charming slogan, isn't two-month salary a small price to pay for something that lasts forever? (laughs) That was my vomit noise response to that. Um, Yeah, forever, forever making people feel like they should go into debt for an engagement ring. So... The answer to why do women wear diamond engagement rings, it's advertising. Yep. It's all advertising. Maybe a, a little bit of contribution to Archduke Maximilian in 1477, but he really didn't start a trend. It was De Beers mm-hmm. and N.W. Ayers. It was, De Beers created this international need for diamond rings solely that they could stay in business. Yeah. Although in more recent years, business has not been as great for De Beers. They, they've actually been bought out for the most part by Anglo-American PLC, which has taken a majority ownership in them. And De Beers has now focused their energy away from the mining so much into retail stores, which in, I think it was 2005, they only had one storefront. And now they've uh, diversified that. I think they have more than 20 stores, which have been very successful because even 
even even with all the controversy in terms of blood diamonds and knowing more about these economics, these shady economics of the diamond trade and how they have been devastating for a number of local mining economies, it's put a dent in the diamond industry, but it's still so strong. We still buy more diamonds than ever before. And the diamond engagement ring is still the standard. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy when you think about it that a diamond, there's no reason for a diamond to be as expensive as it is. No. Except for just the, the people who control them. Yeah, yeah. But there is one major area that advertising for diamonds has failed. And that is when it comes to diamond engagement rings for men. Yeah, that that is just not caught on. I mean, in the 1920s, manufacturers and retail jewelers really tried to launch this concept, but it just didn't catch on. It was it was too much associated with women and romance, I think. Yeah. And it was once those breach of promise to marry laws were dissolved. It just became a thing for women and for women in relationships. As a side note, in 1965, taking a tip from second wave feminism, uh, N.W. Ayers did launch a Women of the World Raise Your Right Hand campaign featuring, quote unquote, bachelor girls, divorcees, widows or career women <laughs> buying their own diamonds. But that didn't take off. Although I want to say it was a couple of years ago, I read a trend piece in the New York Times about women buying themselves their yeah. form of engagement ring. Well, I, I mean, I remember those ads from not too long ago. They, I mean, they did relaunch the campaign to sell those right-hand rings. You know, ones that, you know, your your engagement ring might be very simple and fancy, you know, but your, your, your right-hand ring was going to be something kooky looking. Again, it's just advertising. Yeah, it's it's creating a demand. Yeah, but but back to engagement rings for men. Because speaking of trend stories, in around 2010, uh, some news outlets were trying to say that this was becoming a thing. Because if you go to Scandinavia, and Scandinavian listeners, could you please confirm this for us? Momstuffatdiscovery.com. That's <laughs> where you can email us. Uh, supposedly, male engagement rings are, are totally the norm over there. But over here, we have to do things like call them man-gagement rings. Yeah, come on. <laughs> come on, stop calling them, stop stop making words up. Um, but a handful of jewelers really did jump on this trend, and the New York Times reported on it in 2010. They talked to British jeweler H. Samuel, who had launched a line of rings that allowed women to propose to their men, because obviously women before this time were not allowed to. Yeah. So thank thank you to H. Samuel. And then the jeweler Navori in Washington State offers rings for men ranging from about $400 to nearly 3000 And history professor Stephanie Kuntz out at uh, Evergreen State College explained it thusly. She said, it's a logical extension of our increasing rejection of the double standard of sexuality. She's saying things like male infidelity is becoming less and less acceptable. You know, women are more on an equal footing with men. So why shouldn't they be able to uh, propose to their male partners? And that absolutely happens. And there was a Brides.com survey recently which found that 45% of women surveyed said that they would buy their fiancés an engagement ring. But I don't think that it, that is ever going to catch on. Not because it's a bad thing to do or a wrong thing to do. I feel like it is so entrenched um, in our society that it's... I, I just don't think that male engagement rings are ever going to catch on. There are some couples that do it, 
And I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying that it's wrong, but I, these trend stories try to make it a thing. But as long as you call something a man-gagement ring, yeah. no. Right. No. I, I wouldn't want a lady-gagement ring, you know? It just, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's an, uh, an ova-gagement ring. <laughs> yes. Well, um, I mean, Barbara Rissman, who, uh, she also talked to the New York Times, she's the head of the University of Illinois Sociology Department. She framed it as, you know, relationships becoming more about partnerships. So, both she and her fiance wear engagement rings, but she was also married before. You know, she's older and she, uh, as part of the feminist movement back in the 70s, she was like, I'm not wearing an engagement ring. I don't want to be somebody's property. You know, like, I'm already marrying you. What more do you want? But this time around, not only is she wearing an engagement ring, but her fiance is as well. And her reasoning for that, she says, the feminist movement and I have matured. Yeah, I don't see progress as, oh, well, now women can just propose. Yeah, sure, we can propose. That's Mm -hmm. totally fine. But I would see progress as moving this idea of engagement away from just popping a question Mm -hmm. to maybe just being a more of a a conversation, Mm -hmm. you know, not to say that the romanticized idea of someone getting down on one knee and is my boyfriend listening right now? (laughs) No, but uh, you know what I mean? I I, I think that I don't I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. But I, I think that progress is more just moving to the idea of a partnership. I don't see anything wrong with with both people wearing a ring, too. But that's, I mean, that's exactly what Jessica Valenti's reasoning was in her, she wrote a column about her marriage and proposal experience. The fact that she and her partner, uh, entered into it equally, that they decided to create their own traditions and they caught so much flack from family and friends for it. Yeah, as one of the founders of feministing.com and one of the leading voices and most public faces of feminism today, when she publicly announced that she was getting married, Valenti did receive a lot of criticism from some feminists, too, who said, you're buying into this traditionally patriarchal structure. Why do you need to do that? And she suggested that you can enter into it equally and make your own traditions. But one thing that she didn't explicitly talk about was this engagement ring thing. I don't think there was an engagement ring involved. But um, in the New York Times wedding announcement, she did say, or quoted her as saying, that the only purpose of an engagement ring is to show that you belong to someone and that your man makes bank. And as far as the wedding bands that they exchanged, they were just simple bands. I don't think there were any gems in them that they had bought while on a trip to Rome, which that sounds lovely. Mm, yeah, I want to go on a trip to Rome and buy rings. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting that uh, this was a little dated. This was from 2007. But a, a similarly leading second wave feminist Megan O'Rourke was writing about this engagement ring issue in Slate. And she talks about the fact that for diamonds with the legacy of De Beers and the advertising that it's really just a sales gimmick. And also she calls it a big, shiny, no trespassing sign. But at the end of the post, she notes that, well, yeah, she wears an engagement ring. Well, I mean, I've, I thought about this, too, kind of only vaguely because I'm in no danger of getting engaged anytime soon. But, danger. <laughs> but uh, would I like an engagement ring? Sure. But 
me personally, like I don't I don't want you going out and buying me a bajillion dollar ring. Please don't I, go to Jared. I well, I, I know people who have instead of being able to save money to buy a house or pay off their loans or anything like that, they go out and they buy this huge rock and it just puts them even farther back for when they actually do get married. It's like I would rather you repurpose my grandmother's ring or my mother's ring or something like that. And I, I partially say that because my grandmother gave my mother a ring that's like giant. I'm making a giant circle sign with my hands, but you know, whatever. Or go the Puritan route. Give me a thimble. Get a nice thimble. I can't even sew. So the symbolism wouldn't even be a thing for me. No, but they cut the, and, cut know, the top off. I probably I thought leave. you liked that. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's funny. Or maybe one of those, uh, Victorian era, uh, maybe a hair. He could use his oh, hair Chris. to weave a ring. He could probably just go to my shower drain <laughs> and weave a ring out of that anyway. No hair ring. Okay. I'm just, I'm just saying. Uh, well, speaking of gender, there have been some studies on gender roles and engagement rings. There was one called With This Ring IV Wed, relating gender roles and love styles to attitudes toward engagement rings and weddings by Shirley M. Ogletree that came out in Gender Issues in 2010. And she basically just surveyed a bunch of college students about this. And the, the main takeaway from the study was that women, in fact, do not care about getting big old bling rings and having massive weddings more so than men. Men and women were pretty much equally invested in the notion of an engagement ring and also the relative fanciness of said rings. Um, but she pointed out there were two groups, the the group with the gender stereotypical attitudes and the gender transcendence group, which I just think sounds so lovely. Uh, it sounds like there should be clouds. Um, their their attitude, the gender transcendence attitude, was significantly uh, correlated with the idea that uh, relationships should be more egalitarian. And there there was a le- less of a desire there for the expensive engagement rings or weddings. Whereas um, college students that she surveyed who had those more gender stereotypical attitudes regarding male and female roles did, both male and female, tend to uh, want a more traditional, expensive wedding and engagement. Now, there was also another study examining the amount of money spent on engagement rings by men. This is all so very heteronormative for the moment. Um, and they compared it to the age and income of the women. And they found that younger women received more expensive rings. Also, women with higher income which conformed to predictions derived from sexual selection theory because the idea is that younger women will get bigger rings because they cost more because their worth, in quotes, is higher because since they're younger, they are more fertile, etc. But uh, all of this said, the greatest predictor of the price of an engagement ring wasn't so much relative to the female, but more how much the guy made. The more money he made the bigger the ring that right. he bought. Which, again, this still, though, ties into that idea of, well, is an engagement ring, buying a huge engagement ring, so much a symbol of one's love or a symbol of a guy's income? Does it is it, again, just a bragging right, not only that, hey, this is, this is his gal, especially if he's not wearing a ring, hey, this is uh, my betrothed, don't, don't, you can look, but don't touch. Uh, and look at how much I spent on the ring. 
So he's like twice raised up on this. So he could be putting his bank account on display or he could just be getting what he thinks he needs to get for the fiance. Yeah. And we're talking in very symbolic terms. Right. You know, I don't I don't think that <laughs> that men are, are evil no, somehow no. trying to parade women around like cattle by yeah, no. via going to Tiffany. But this is why that that symbolism and the history of it is why engagement rings are often met with disapproval right. by by feminists. Well, I, I do look forward. You, you mentioned, uh, you know, this is all very heteronormative for the moment. I, I did try to look up uh, stuff on engagement rings among gay couples, but really there's nothing out there except maybe uh, tongue-in-cheek etiquette guides mm-hmm. for who should propose to whom, should we both wear rings, should only one of us wear rings. That is something that I would like to hear from listeners, you know, from from gay and lesbian couples out there, like who have gotten engaged, gotten married, what did you decide to do? Did you both wear rings? Did only one person wear rings? Because um, some of the etiquette out there is like, hey, do whatever you want. Um, Gawker's only warning for men was a diamond encrusted band on top of a wedding ring is going to make you look like Liberace. So I actually want to hear from listeners about what what they have done. Yeah. Michelle Court, who is the editor of Here Comes the Bride, Reflections on Lesbian Love and Marriage, uh, said that lesbians have long worn matching rings, so they might do that. But then again, all of it kind of ends with make up your own traditions, which I think is great. Yeah. That same sex couples have more of a blank slate to create their own traditions without, as in the case of someone like Jessica Valeni, getting a lot of flack from family and friends saying, you're not, where's the, but you're, you know. (laughs) So we want to hear, though, from couples now about this engagement ring issue, because there is a not so bright history as to why we wear diamond engagement rings. Guys, I want to know about this issue of men wearing engagement rings, too. Would you wear one? Do you think that it's a bit imbalanced, that it's women who receive the engagement ring? The idea that we should spend two months salary on a ring, which, again, that is only a product of advertising. Let us know all of your thoughts. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send them. And we didn't even get into, you know, the Facebook photos of girls showing off their rings. And would you do that? I'd probably do it. I'm very conflicted. <laughs> help, help me sort out my my feelings about engagement rings by writing to me and Caroline at MomStuffAtDiscovery.com. You can also find us on Facebook and tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. Got to tell you about Best Fiends. It's the game pretty much everybody's talking about. Morgan number two plays it sometimes before we start the show. You know, it really challenges your brain with the fun puzzles, but it's also a very casual game, so it won't stress you out, which is perfect these days, right? What's great is you can use the game as a way to connect with your friends and your family, all while social distancing. The game is so much more than your average mobile puzzle game. It's five-star rated with over 100 million downloads, thousands of fun levels, and tons of characters to collect. You know, there are new in-game challenges and events every month, so the game's always fresh. You'll never be bored with it. You can even play the game without using Wi-Fi. So, here we go. You don't want to miss out on the game. Join millions of Americans and a lot of us here on the show who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. Just go over there, hit download Best Fiends for free, Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. 
Check it out. I do think you'll like it. Friends without the R, best fiends. This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halo. Between being on video calls all day, having to wear masks everywhere, and now using our eyes and only our eyes to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite brow product that is so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, have the most amazing brows ever. They have professional quality products at the perfect price point. Celebrity makeup artists use Arches and Halos because of how well done the formulas are, and they are half the price of department store brands. They have eight color shades to choose from, everything from sunny blonde to auburn to charcoal. Everyone is represented. They cater to women and men of all brow shapes and sizes. Embrace your natural brow. And they're all about individuality. Brow tools for all looks and style needs. You can use for dramatic or natural look. They have an amazing range of products, too, from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, gels, all kinds of things. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. And now back to our letters. All right, Kristen, I have one here from Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah writes, as a lover of genre fiction, I found e-readers and iBooks a boon for a reason that relates to one of your recent podcasts. I find the covers of genre fiction embarrassing. Specifically, I enjoy sci-fi, fantasy, and urban fantasy. Sci-fi and fantasy often have aggressively masculine covers. Biceps and barely covered boobs abound. And urban fantasy, often written by women, have romancy covers. Think man with floppy hair, artistic stubble. What is artistic stubble? And boyish features looking pensive. Now I can enjoy my vampires, wizards, and ray guns without having to explain to every passerby, no, the writing's actually really good. So thank you. Well, I've got an email here from Dee, also about our episode on judging books by their covers. She writes, "Um, I've attended an annual event held by D.C. area book clubs, which feature African-American authors. Book covers have come up often as a topic of conversation. The authors have mentioned the fact that they have very little say on the design of their covers. The authors that write romance have mentioned that their publishers do not want to feature people on the covers so that the book is not pigeonholed into the African-American author section of the bookstore, or even worse, urban romance. Romance. Authors that have attained a level of success that would normally allow their photo to be placed in the back of the book jacket are told that this will decrease book sales. And also authors with stereotypically African-American names are encouraged to adopt a pseudonym or to use an initial instead of their given name. Several of the more commercially successful authors have re-released their early work with their given names instead of pseudonyms. And there are also mixed feelings within this community as to whether an African-American author section should exist at your local Barnes & Noble. Does this section do more harm than good? Just some food for your literary thoughts. Yeah, some food indeed. Um, that was something that we did not bring up, which is uh, race and ethnicity. And that was something when we were researching that issue of gender and authors and book covers and book marketing. Uh, that was a conversation that came up saying, hey, yeah, we've got this whole thing about women, but you know what's even worse? Issues for writers of color. So um, thanks so much, D, for bringing that up because that's definitely an area that needs to be addressed. And if you have an area that needs to be addressed with us, you can write us at momstuffdiscovery.com. You can write us over on Facebook as well. Follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Tumblr at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And as always, you can watch us four times a week over on YouTube. It's youtube.com slash stuffmomnevertoldyou. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Amy Nelson. And I'm Sam Edis. We're the hosts of iHeart's newest podcast, What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We both have our own businesses, and between us, we have seven children. And since the moment we met, we've been sharing our stories with each other. The thing is, we all know the stories of industry titans like Bezos and Jobs, but the stories of women, they remain incomplete. We ask questions no one else even touches. We are not afraid to get personal. So listen to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dear Young Rockers Season 2 is a raw, honest, strange, and entertaining story about finding yourself in your early 20s and a lifelong relationship with music. It's hosted by me, Chelsea Erson, and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and iHeartRadio. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.